welcome to Project Recovery. It's a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's a podcast about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. If you know somebody who needs some help, have them do what I did and give Pinnacle Recovery Center a call. They'll get you on your way to recovery. Dr. Matt? How you doing? When are you going to get that haircut? Well, so I mean, you've been threatening us with a good time for about three episodes now. Well, I will say that I hate getting my hair cut. I do, too. absolutely hate You know when they go, hey, do you want your hair washed and massaged? No, just get me out of here as quick as you can. Yeah, that's one of the few things in life that I consistently just can't stand is getting a haircut. I had a haircut scheduled earlier in the week, and then I got busy and canceled it. Were you so busy doing your presentation on screen time? (laughs) It was something. That was was part of it, yeah. I heard that was a great success. And if you're listening to us now on the podcast, you can go back. We just released it as a bonus episode. An hour and 20 minutes I didn't of know Matt. That. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's a lot of Matt. Well, how, how, how was it? It was a lot of fun. We had a great turnout. Um, KSL put on a presentation. It was about anxiety, depression, suicide, and we weaved some screen time talk in there. And you got all had that done in parents. an hour and 20 minutes? Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and we did a big Q&A at the end. I don't know if that's in the bonus episode. It is, and you can also see okay. it on our Facebook page, on the wow. Project Recovery Facebook okay. page. And the thing, because I, I watched it. Yeah? I watched it, and you did a great job. I saved your seat, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I, I watched it, and the thing I liked, they said they were trying to wrap it up, and there was five people in the queue waiting to ask a question, and Dr. Matt said, Nope, we'll make sure everyone's questions are answered. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool of you. Oh, well, I, I wanted to make sure everybody had a chance to talk. I wasn't in a hurry to go anywhere, so. But I, I like the fact that people came loaded with questions. They had great questions, a lot of uh, a lot of audience participation. It was a lot of fun. I hope we can do another one sometime. You betcha. And so uh, I've got some big news. Yeah, what's that? Do you want to guess? I think it's that shirt. You're looking really cool today. Do you want to know the story behind the shirt? Yeah, I do. Okay. So uh, I had to go help my girlfriend, uh, girlfriend's daughter jump her car at Fremont High School the other day. All right. And uh, since I'm up in Ogden because I got to blow twice a day for the <laughs> right. 24-7 program. Yeah, explain that. Please. I was going yeah. to stay up there that <laughs> night, and I forgot to bring a shirt. So this uh-huh. is my girlfriend's son's shirt. Is it really? Yeah. No wonder yeah. you're looking so yeah. cool. I was like, <laughs> I need to borrow one of your son's shirts. And she All goes, right. you have this one. And I go, he doesn't want it. And she goes, nope. And so, oh, that's a cool looking yeah, shirt. Yeah, right? RVCA. Ruka. Ruka. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. That's how you say I'm it. I'm not cool like the, the cool kids. kids. saying that. Yeah. So that, the, the, the shirt's not the new news. Oh, okay. But you do look really... Uh, young. Yeah. Today. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, so let's play a game in here. All right. Everybody, raise your hand if you're employed. Yeah. I got a All job. Right. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a recovery specialist with Pinnacle Recovery Center. Nice. Very good. So what that really means is I'm uh, out and about talking about what I do here. Talk about Pinnacle Recovery Center and what they offer. And so. Uh, so you go where? Where do you go? So I go to detox centers. Mm-hmm. I go to other recovery centers mm-hmm. because like we've talked about with recovery centers, you know, you really owe it to yourself and your family man, family members and your loved ones to find the recovery center that mm-hmm. best fits your needs, best fits your vibe, best fits your way of thinking. And so we go and talk to all the other recovery centers. And so if somebody comes to Pinnacle Recovery Center and they want help and I go, okay, but this is kind of what we're doing and it doesn't align with their beliefs or their thoughts, we go, well, maybe this one's more your speed. Oh, okay. So, so instead of just trying to make them fit into your model, yeah, you're aware of lots of different models that yeah. are out there. I mean, because there's all kinds of different people out there and different addictions, and you know, and so we just try to find the best fit for that person. So it's a very 
close knit group, I guess. And yeah, so I, I, yeah. this morning I spent uh, some time up at Brighton Recovery in Ogden, okay. and just got to know everybody up there. And they they started out when you're all in a circle, and they're like, "Okay, so say who you are, say how long you've been with the company." And I was the very last one, and I was like, "My name's Casey. This is my third day. Nice. <laughs> how are you guys? Yeah. Thanks for the breakfast." And I mean, so I'm really excited because I think one of the best things you can do for your recovery is service and giving back. You bet. And I'm passionate about it. I'm mm-hmm. I know the program. I'm an alumni of the program and so And you're pretty good at talking. I love to talk. Yeah. You're and pretty so good at that. That's what I do. Well I'm really glad for you because it's been a long year of uh, you know, bum and ride. So thank goodness that's over. Um, uh, I've been DJing. A lot, of, a lot of Uber, a lot of Uber bills, a lot of DJing gigs. I yeah. know you've been wanting. And you know, I I was I was talking to somebody the other day. Somebody asked me, uh, one of my colleagues at work actually asked me because they've been following your story. How how is it that he is is working? And I said, well, that's actually been a really hard thing. He isn't working. We talked about how how often things that come with uh, getting a DUI or whatever, stop you from progressing in your uh, recovery. The ramifications. Yeah, the ramifications. And some people seem to have very little empathy for that until you explain to them, like, listen, for somebody who can't drive in our culture here, in our society, you you are very limited on where you can go to get treatment. You're handcuffed to your house. Where you can go to work. And if you can't work then you're much more likely to relapse when the pressures are up in life, then your relapse rate is much higher. And so I'm so glad to hear that you have that job. That's awesome, man. You know, it, and you're the great, and we were talking about the program in Weber County uh, 24-7, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that, it's, that's a no-brainer. I can't believe that isn't everywhere. Well, I, I think they're trying to implement it. I hope so. And so I, I think what they're doing is seeing how this works and seeing how the success is. And so right now, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased as punch. I, I mean, the people probably look at me weird because I'm whistling going into a jail twice a day. <laughs> you know, like, hey, yeah. you know, I'm just going, hey, what's up? How are you doing? You know? But like that whole, like that means freedom that you can go in there and uh, blow and then leave. Yeah. I just can't stop laughing. And so every time I'm driving in my car because I've got an interlock device on the car, you know, every once in a while it goes off and you have to breathe into it. And mm-hmm. my son, my eight-year-old goes, what's that? And I go, if I don't blow into this, the world's going to blow up, son. <laughs> he goes, blow, dad, blow. I got, I've got this. And so, All right. No, yeah. Way to create anxiety disorders <laughs> in your kid. Good job. Wow. I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> I thought I was being funny. Fear is funny. Yeah. Hey, so Project Recovery is continuing to share great stories. And that's what we really like. And, and uh, last week was a very informative one. We talked about mm-hmm. preventative maintenance. We talked about education. And there's some great groups out there. There really are. And uh, probably a month ago, I was doing a presentation at the We Are One Recovery Expo up in Ogden. And I got a chance to hear this young lady's story. And afterwards, she came up to me and she goes, hey, I'd love to be on your... It makes your- you sound really old when you say this young lady. Okay. How old are you? I'm older than you. 47. I'm 47. You're I'm 45. 45. I'm just saying. Lizzie, how old are you? 30. <laughs> I know. I know she's young and we're old, but... I'm but just, I'm wearing the hip shirt. Yeah, you do look cool today. I'll have oh, to give that okay, to you. Okay, thanks. Yeah. But Lizzie has an amazing story. So not only are we going to hear her story, we're going to hear from her husband, Brian. He's here as well. But just, you know, because we run an honest program. Right. Lizzie, I had the biggest crush on your sister, Emily, all through high school. She was a tigerette. She was cool. She was so much fun, and, and she was just the coolest chick ever. So how, how's Emily doing? So good. All right. She still is all of those things, Isn't except she? for a tigerette. No, she's not a tigerette. But she, she, she kind of ran the tigerettes for a while, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was the coach after for, I think, a year. 
And you were a cheerleader at Ogden High. Mm-hmm. Go Ogden. Wow. Ogden High yeah. School football rules. Yes, it does. Well, I don't know about the football. <laughs> They've the had che- some hard. They had some hard years. We had some rough years. But do we have the horse? They're getting better. Yeah. 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 We got the horse. That's all that matters. That's our rivalry between Ben Loman High School and Ogden High School. It's a called horse? the Iron Horse. Oh, the Iron Horse. Yeah. Okay. It's actually a train. It's a train. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But but they call it a horse. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So Lizzie, let's hear about your story. <laughs> Um, okay, where should I start? Like, Wait, all the way back? Yeah, or? why well, not? Tell, tell us where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Mountain Green. I grew oh, up in Ogden. There we so. go. Yeah. Yeah, she's a, she's a Morganite, but you grew up in Ogden. Yes, I grew up in Ogden, like you said, Emily, my sister, and then I'm the youngest of six. And I grew up really normal, very normal childhood, nothing... No, no trauma. No trauma. No abuse. No, nothing that I can pinpoint that would have caused any sort of imbalance. I was very physically active. I played soccer. I ran track. I ran cross country, and then I was a cheerleader. So that was a big bulk of my high school. I was. Um, it's kind of funny to watch Emily's daughter Annie now because I can see myself in her. I was very. OCD about my grades. 4.0, nothing less was acceptable. And I always wanted to be, like, I always wanted to start on the soccer team. I didn't want to be, like, second string. I always... uh, So you had high standards for yourself. Very high standards. But nobody was... Nobody put those on me. My parents didn't... Self-imposed. Yeah. My parents weren't like, if you don't get a 4.0, you don't get a car. Or, like, I got a job at 16 and... My parents were well off. I didn't have to get a job. I just always was very driven, kind of just. I want a daughter like Lizzie. I mean, I got great daughters. Yeah. Lizzie's setting the bar high. Yeah. Some kids really, I mean, we're all born with certain tendencies and some people have that uh, drive to achieve. You know, they're like you're saying, very active, lots, a lot of different interests, want to be good at the things you try. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Very competitive. Yep. Mostly with myself, but very competitive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That carried on. So high or to college, I um, did one year of like getting all of the extra the things to qualify for nursing school. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then I went to Weber Prerequisites. State. Prerequisites. Yes, thank you. Thank oh my you. goodness, I went to Weber State's nursing program, and which is tough to get into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got in uh, my first time, which was exciting, and uh, after. About my first year in nursing school, I met Brian, and we've been so we've been married for nine years now. And I worked at McKady Hospital on the pediatric unit and the step down ICU unit for eight years. But before that, I so I left McKay when I had my daughter. So we had some infertility problems, which was really hard especially for um, my high standards. I feel like I everything should like be able to make sense. So any bumps in the road, I really struggled with. And infertility was definitely one of those things. And so we did infertility treatments. We had our daughter, I think it was like a couple years after trying. And, and that can put a stress on a relationship. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's also, it sounds like, you know, to draw the attention to the difference on that versus the other things, you know, whether it's grades or sports or 
um, you know, getting accepted to the nursing program. Those were all things you had some fairly large element of control over. If you studied yeah. hard, if you worked right. hard, you could guarantee outcomes. And right. so um, when you hit a roadblock in life that you don't have control over, like yeah. fertility, mm-hmm. then that's extra frustrating for high achieving people because you're like, hey, all the skills and tools that I use to be successful in every other area of my life don't apply here yeah. because I can't just study harder and get pregnant. Or, yeah. You know, like right. it's, it's, it's a, a biological issue. And that must have been, um, how would you describe that feeling of being out of control or being um, uh, unable to fix it? I was so defeated. I feel like it was kind of like the center of every emotion. Every conversation that we would have with friends, with family, with between us, it caused so much tension that I just felt like kind of like a um, a failure in the sense of like I can't do the one thing that I'm, I'm here to do. And isn't that isn't that strange <laughs> to feel like a failure? Yet, you know, uh, it's something you didn't really have control over, right? right? Yeah. But because you're used to being able to achieve, work hard, create the outcomes you want for yourself, you're right. People, when they hit a health crisis like that, feel like a failure. Like, I just, I'm not good enough. I didn't work hard enough. Yeah. But, of course, rationally, that doesn't apply. But emotionally, it really gets you down. Hey, you're listening to Project Recovery. More with Brian and Lizzie coming up. behind because I'm so competitive in this that sense of everything is I would look at my friends having kids and I'm like no mm-hmm. you can't have another baby I haven't had mine yet you know so jealousy you should no. have like 12 now just to show them up <laughs> nope <laughs> we have two and we're good which is now funny because I was so desperate but um so after I had her uh and about how old were you at that time 26 25 yeah she so I had her and I was planning on staying home with her and thank goodness because Brian is an engineer so he has given me that opportunity and I love it and I was so excited to be a stay-at-home mom and I was gonna do it just perfect because you know that perfectionism at least better than your friends right yeah better than anyone because i (laughs) yeah and i'm the youngest of six so i have like all these nieces and nephews that i've helped raise like i would emily's kids my sister i had them all the time and uh they're i feel like they're part of mine me and i knew how to do it and i was it was going to be so easy and um it was probably two I I always say two to three weeks I don't know exactly when it set in I know I felt not great in the hospital but I didn't feel great in the hospital with my son who I had five months ago so once I got home I felt better but three weeks later I I just like didn't want to get out of bed so three weeks after delivering your first child yeah my daughter yeah so so, is that postpartum mm -hmm, bad like I've never felt depression I've never felt really anxiety other than everybody who feels anxiety every day normal anxiety and I just felt so alone and isolated and it was going from working at the hospital tons of people around me all the day all all day and so many like 
intellectual conversations and I was pushing my brain and um, to go from that to staying home all day with a newborn and you know newborns they just blankly stare mm-hmm. into your eyes and you don't even know there's like no emotion behind it so the only connection really that I had was when Brian would get home from work and um, that was solely to do with the fact that I was isolating I was just wanting to stay home and have everyone go away that was my biggest thing is that I had my daughter and uh, that's all I wanted and the other part of it too Uh, the more that I've processed through that part of my life was I didn't want people to see that I was failing with myself. Like I didn't want people to see, we were talking earlier before we started is that I was the life of the party kind of like I have that very bubbly talkative personality. I love to connect. I love to. You don't um, want anyone to see you this way. I didn't want anyone to see me. Yeah. It was behind the curtain like a wizard of Oz. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah, I wanted to keep it to myself, and I wanted to wait until it went away and then show that, see, I'm I'm fine and everything's great. So and were you savvy enough with your RN degree to know that you were suffering postpartum? I would say I fully admitted that like a month and a half after having her. Yeah. Yeah. And but so who do you – It took a while for you to – recognize the the signs or what? Yeah, I think um, I was really trying for it to be postpartum blues, Mm. not depression. Because I know everybody, I've I've seen a lot of people go through the early parts of motherhood and the sleep sleep deprivation and um, how just how hard and new it is that I'm like, I'm just adjusting. Like, I'll just get used to this and then I'll be fine and I'll snap out of it. I think once I knew I was was depressed was once I... um, had run out of my pain prescription that I was numbing the depression with, and then I didn't have anything for like a week, I knew I was depressed. I just, yeah. So you were taking the uh, the pain pills, the prescription that you got just for a normal pregnancy? So I took it in the hospital for normal pregnancy, and then I had some epidural pain that I took it for like on and off for like a week after I got home, but it was about three weeks after I, I took it and... This was once I I knew, like, once the depression had set in, and I took that first one, and it was like the world changed. It was like I could see color. I could – I wanted to go out on a walk. I called my mom and talked to her forever. I uh, went grocery shopping. I got ready, which was, like, a huge thing. I was just barely doing the bare minimum, taking a shower every day. So essentially you felt like you got your life back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my normal, which was what I was waiting for. So all of a sudden I felt normal with this in my system. And it was opiate pain. I don't know which one it was, but some kind of opiate. Yeah. And so how long did you keep that going for? So I ran out of that first one and uh, we just went back to my OB and he gave me more. And then I went back again to him and he didn't. So then I went to my primary care physician and I probably went to him I'd probably like five. My daughter was probably five months. How did your OB handle that conversation when you went back the second time? Did you ask for more? It's interesting. It's very interesting because he um, he just I I t- like I had like a a tear and um, I had fallen down the stairs, so it was like just whatever. I had like acute pain that yeah. I could describe, so he didn't question it. 
really. So, but, but the, why didn't he send you with a prescription that second time? The third time, so the third time, or yeah, that second time that I went back, he just said, we don't do that. It was kind of just like a hard line. Okay. Which now, he was my doctor for my son, who I had five months ago, and he's like on the opioid board uh, and like he's, yeah he's very involved with it and mm-hmm. so when I first went in for my first appointment I'm like I want no pain medicine like I was barely pregnant he's like okay that's like way down the road but I'm like I want no pe- medicine I don't want it ever offered mm-hmm. this is the line and then he told me that and I'm like that's so interesting and he's like I've I failed a lot of patients that's something he said and I didn't tell him obviously I'm not going to say that but I did say I got addicted to them after having my daughter, and it's so scary. Well, I think one of the things that's great about having you on the show is you can speak to it from a medical point of view, being you know, a nurse and having your own experience as a patient. Yeah. And we've talked with lots of people. I mean, I don't, we haven't really hammered too deeply and gotten into the cultural change that's happening in medicine, but mm-hmm. that's a new thing to have doctors on the board of something mm-hmm. like an opiate task force. Because as little as 10 years ago, uh, doctors, that was just kind of the standard practice was to give out without questioning a lot or thinking about addiction. Yeah. And I don't mean to mean to say that doctors have never thought about that, of course, but the culture is changing. Yeah. And, and it's because, um, you know, certain uh, physicians and nurses have gotten involved with that, uh, with things like task force and, mm-hmm. and changing policies. And so yeah. I'm glad to hear that five years ago he said, we just don't do that. It, yeah. And it's just crazy, too, that just within five years, that change. It's they, been a really short period of time that this yeah. change has happened, but it's it's spreading quickly. Yeah. I, it was amazing to me. So you go to the OB. He draws a hard line. Mm-hmm. And so then you go, well, I got to get some. Mm-hmm. And you go to your primary care physician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he gave it out. There was really no problem there. But what the problem for me was I started to get panicky and already very deceitful and not wanting Brian to find out. So I started to, like, rummage through medicine cabinets at friends' houses. And, like, if my mom wasn't home or – well, I guess I never did from her. But, like, if I knew somebody was going to be gone, I'd say, can I borrow something, go in their house, take some of their pills and – yeah, I started to do that on top of getting prescriptions. So it wasn't like overly getting prescribed. Like I didn't want Brian to think, whoa, this is a problem. And I told him I was just getting it for headaches. And then from all these other people, it was like, I know how to like fill in the gaps from stealing from friends and family. No, your addiction gives you a lesson on how to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, because it's it's fight or flight. I mean. And you can't go without. Yeah. And so you always That's not have an enough. Option. Yeah. Well, let me, I'm going to, if it's okay, challenge you a little bit. Uh-oh. So you're a nurse, you're, you know, uh, six weeks out at this point and realize I, I don't just have postpartum blues. I really feel this postpartum depression and I'm taking opiates and I feel the benefit temporary, obviously, mm-hmm. yeah. of those for my depression. Why not, why not seek real medical treatment for your depression? I did. Okay. Tell, I did. tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So when I went to him, I said, I I have these headaches. That's why I, to get the pain medicine. But I'm like, but I, I think I'm depressed. And uh, I felt like this since I've had my baby. And um, so he, he tried three different antidepressants. And I just didn't trust the process, even though I know the six, six weeks to be fully kicked in. And I never went off the pain medicine to allow my body to like rid that 
euphoria and that change in my brain to allow the antidepressants to do what they're supposed to do. I would just say in like a week, oh, they're not working and stop taking them. And that's interesting because you knew Mm -hmm. you're talking about SSRI, serotonin specific reuptake inhibitors. You're talking about we know that it's, you know, about six weeks before we see maximum benefit from Mm -hmm. those medicines. Yet you didn't want to wait that long you'd go a week or two and and that's what my patients do they'll come back that doesn't work mm-hmm. right so um was that to maintain do you think that was part your subconscious mind i want to maintain the addiction i don't want to definitely I the don't addict want, brain. i, I liked, don't want prozac to work yeah so i'm going to stop it early yeah i definitely liked the way pain medicine made me feel yeah. that's 100% true it was so immediate that i could be a good mom in 30 minutes versus 6 Wait, weeks from now yeah But also, I still kind of had that chip on my shoulder that I don't get depression. Yeah. Because I'm me. I wondered about that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm very much so that, like, that competitive thing, like, I'm – it's – they're not working because I don't You know, I was thinking about this in – because I know people have said this about me and my addiction to my family. And I know people say it. And I think what we've learned about addiction is it, it doesn't discriminate. Yeah. But for the longest time, people thought, oh, like that happened to him. He comes from such a good family. Right. Or, you know, I can't believe that happened to him. You know, exactly. he seems like they come from such good stock, you know. As if somehow you guys are messing around yeah. in something you shouldn't. Or, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, 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 wow. There's, why, why? Why did it happen to him? Right. right. And, it, and the, the reality is it can happen to all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's on an addiction conversation. It's also on the broader spectrum of mental health. Yeah. You know, and so people... Uh, say the same things about an anxiety disorder or depression, like, oh, well, what what happened? What What's wrong with them? I thought they had a nice family, you yeah. know, things mm-hmm. like that. And interestingly enough, um, and I don't mean to derail your story too much, but I think there's this, there's a parallel here between your postpartum depression, obviously, and your addiction development. But as over the last five or six years, we've had a huge uh, public awareness and research in the opiates addiction problem. There's also a ton of research going on in postpartum Mm -hmm. issues with not just postpartum depression, but we now have identified something called postpartum psychosis. And a lot of women really have struggled in silence feeling like postpartum, oh, it's not a real thing. Many women will have postpartum blues. And so often women are not very supportive of each other. Oh, well, I got over mine Mm -hmm. just in a couple of weeks. I felt fine. And other women will feel a lot of guilt. Well, I have this beautiful baby here and I get to stay home. Why am I not happy? And so they don't want to admit it to anyone. They don't want to talk to anyone about it. And so addictions can start in that time. I'm glad you brought it up to your physician because women I've spoken to have even not wanted to, because, you know, you come in with the new baby for a well check and the doctor's like, oh, what a cute baby. It must be great. And and you don't want to admit that you are severely depressed. And the guilt of infertility. Yeah, This is what I wanted. Right. Why? I was mad it wasn't happening. And now it's here. Why am I not not happy? happy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was so crazy. So how long do you think, uh, how long were you in your active addiction? Okay, so if I I can kind of, I'll speed this up no, a little no. because you just mentioned something that I think is the cult, like the culture, culture of this doesn't happen in these certain families, yeah. bringing that up. So I went, so it was, I, my daughter was eight months, nine months when I started treatment the first time. So I went through Action Recovery Group in South Ogden, where I work now, for 28 days. And I got out 
got into their continuing care program and I immediately got a job, which was not great because I was around pain pills and mm. I was only 30 days clean. So I um, was doing like a home health type job and I ended up taking some from one of the patients and it was this whole thing and um, like I got reprimanded and then I kind of was honest and so she was like it was it was just like this gray area and then I uh, figured out that the way that the home health system worked you can like the way that opiate prescriptions are now you have to like go in pick it up from the doctor then go fill it you know physically but with home health you could do like this weird faxing thing so I did that and I was I had already relapsed totally faking it he was coming to continuing care with me everything was great like I was clean life was great but you were living a lie living a lie yep I had I had not closed that back door of not ever being around pain pills, which is sealed shut now. I just didn't realize that was such a big thing for me. I'm like, I can be around them, definitely. I did 28 days. I'm fixed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know what I did wrong. You know, I think there's a lot of people who do that, and that's what goes to a relapse is they think they've got the education and they they got the knowledge. They go, oh, I can – yeah, I'm I'm good now. Yeah. Education is the first step, but it's not sufficient. To keep people sober. Education is just not enough. Right. I mean, there's got to be actions. Yep. And you're not unique. That's the thing is I felt so like, once again, I'm competitive. I'm the best. I've got this figured out in 28 days. And so I'm unique. I can be around them. I know all of these other people can't and they have to shut all their back doors, but I don't have to because I'm better, (laughs) which is horrible. But anyway, so I actually got arrested because of the prescription fraud. Prescription fraud. So you, mm-hmm. you did eventually get caught and arrested. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah. What was, was that like? Where, where were you when you got arrested? <clears throat> I've been arrested. <laughs> <laughs> that was Knuckles. Yeah. Between Casey and yeah. I. <laughs> A little bones there. Uh, it's like the worst but I, but, but Knuckles I, I, to get. <laughs> and, and I say that because... I, I know the pressure I put on myself and my family about that. And, and, and I'm forever sorry. But mm-hmm. it was a reality that happened, and I can't go back and change it. All yeah. I can do is move forward and do my best to every day. happened i bet did you, what, what were your oh thoughts gosh. so i am a church a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i was serving in the young women's presidency i just barely gotten released he was the young men's president it was a sunday i had one of my quote headaches so i was home really just not wanting to go to church because i was living a lie going and um a detective called me and said he wanted to meet with me about whatever and I was like oh okay that's great whatever and so I went this was on a Sunday so it was super weird the he whole thing was called so you weird to come called down me to, to the come station? to the station yeah and so I went in with my daughter what were you thinking like what were you thinking about why you were going um well I'm unique I can get away with anything I'll talk my way out Look of this at my charm yeah I can yeah. smile and skip by like I got through treatment in 28 days and I can do that again and 
just talk my way. I mean, he knows better than anyone. I manipulated the crap out of him. But I, so I went in and um, it was just in this little room and he was just talking to me. And then he, he showed me like the thing, the facts thing for the prescription fraud. And I was like, my heart just sunk. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to go to court and all this stuff. And I almost felt like that it was fine because I had my daughter with me. But um, they were like, we're arresting you. And I was like, right now? I just remember feeling so much like I was different than other people. Like, he can't, he's not going to arrest me. I have my daughter. So he uh, got a call at church. Just like horrible. Had to come down. He's your husband. This is, my yeah, husband, Brian, sorry. Brian, Brian, yeah. And we're going to hear from Brian in just a second. He got a call and, yeah, he – he came down and he picked my daughter up and yeah, I went, I went to jail for six days. It was like, I think that's when like the reality of all of it set in. And it was almost kind of like, this is crazy to say, but I almost was like, okay, everyone knows my life. I mean, I did feel like my life is ruined. Um, I actually wrote about this, um, in a meditation the other day was, uh, all of our titles that we give ourselves. And I think a big thing for me was I like to not label, but title myself. And my friend and I, my best friend and I were talking about the fact that I still call myself an addict and to label yourself. Her husband has a hard time with being like labeled forever as like that. I label myself forever as an addict. And, and I'm thinking of that and I'm like, I label myself as a mother, a friend, a wife, a uh, four sport athlete like I've labeled myself this whole time my whole life as as these titles and I just remember being in that jail cell and being like all of my titles are ripped for me because I've ruined everything like my whole life is over it was very very humbling (laughs) I uh mine was drunk That was the title that I gave myself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that wiped away all of this stuff that I've done prior. Yeah. Was drunk. Mm-hmm. And I think through recovery, you learn that it doesn't wipe those things away. Yeah. You still are a mother. You still are an athlete. You yeah. You still all those things. But that one was right in front of your face. Yeah. And you had to deal with it. Yeah. And so there you are in jail for six days thinking yeah. your whole world came to an end. Yeah. For many, we talk about a rock bottom on this podcast. Is that your rock bottom? Definitely. I think that definitely was the moment within that first week because in jail I made a suicide plan. So my rock bottom was incorporated with that. I did get out and I knew um, I was going to go home to my house and I knew that he wouldn't my husband wouldn't let me have my daughter and so I knew she would be his mom's or my mom's or whatever and I'd be home and so I had it all planned out that I was going to just get in the tub and take the gun so it wouldn't be super messy there's the perfectionism coming in so somebody wouldn't have to like clean up a huge mess and and the next day once he went to work that yeah I would kill myself and the God's hand in that was him saying, you're not coming home. You're going wherever you're going to go, but you're not coming home. So I went to my mom's 
didn't have access to that and I ended up having a meeting with my counselor Rick at Action Recovery Group that very next day and which was a conversation that saved my life for sure it was just me saying I'm ruined all of this is ruined and that's when we had a big conversation I had a big conversation with Rick about closing all the back doors those back doors that I was telling you about that I'm going to let you catch your, your <laughs> yeah, breath here for good. one second because I want to bring you in, Brian. Okay. Why wouldn't you let her home? Oh, man. <laughs> Where does the list begin? It was just constant fighting. It was constant lying. And she said constant, constant manipulating. It was every time we were around, I was always suspecting her being high. Like, okay, you're high. Where are you getting pills from? Where are you hiding them? Where are they? How dare you? You know, it was constantly. So... When she got arrested, my phone kept ringing, answered it. It's like, hey, it's the police. We've got your daughter. You need to come pick her up. I'm just like, oh. And I was kind of relieved. I'm like, good. Because something had to happen. Because the way we were going, we were done. Like I was just done with this. It felt like my life was ruined. I was just constantly having to babysit two kids, like her and my daughter, and I didn't trust her with the, my daughter while I was at work because who knows what was going on. And um, so when that finally happened and I went and picked her up, the cop was talk, talking to me. And he's like, well, we think we have enough evidence that we're going we're gonna to arrest her. So I'm like, good. I'm like, you should. I told him, I'm like, you should. You should test her for this, this. This is what she's been stealing. I've been getting phone calls from family, friends, and nothing. It's just out of control. So um, when she got out, I was super bitter, super mad. I'm just like, you got what you deserve. Now you can't come home. Don't bother us. Like, go figure your life out. Sounds like they started to return an element of control to your life. Yeah, it felt exactly. I had zero control. This was my life was spiraling out of control for a decision I never made, which I had a really hard time coming to grips with. Mm -hmm. I'm doing everything right. I'm trying to be the best person I can be, and she's off doing what she wants to do, and it was directly affecting me, and I just – it killed me. It's interesting, Casey, to see the uh, the comparison between both of them telling that version of the story, right? So you were doing your thing and and using and trying to feel like I can stay on top of this and I can keep things under control while at the same time it sounds like you were frantically – running around feeling more and more like things were spiraling out of control. And when that day came of the arrest, you know, it sent you to a reality, which we'll talk about in a second, which is common for perfectionist thinkers. But it started to ground you a little bit more, didn't it, Brian? Gave you kind of a return of like, you know, I think a lot of listeners might say, oh, that sounds uncaring that he was saying, good, arrest her. But... That was the, the stabilization you needed to be able to take care of your family, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't the first time. I've called the cops on her. Was, oh, let's hear that. I was but, just... But, but, but on the same thing, I was very empathetic towards Lizzie because I've been where she is. Well, yeah. You, you know? No, and, yeah. And, and I mean, I started getting teary-eyed <laughs> when she told that story. Of because course. Because I've been desperate. I've been down. I, the, the jig is up. I've, I've, you know, I've yeah. been to that... Point. And I go, right. and, and, and when she says she felt that relief, there's like, Whew. yeah, I had that release. And it was, and I was like, sure. Oh, 
Okay. Yeah. No, I I think I think it's empathy for both people. That's what's so great about having the two of you come on as a couple and talk about both of your experiences with with this and you're both going through it but having very different experiences both difficult and we can have empathy for both same story what you're both yeah. going through yeah um i think you know for a perfectionist person a very competitive person when you finally hit that wall it you one of the negatives being a competitive person is a cool thing <laughs> those, those are the people that like entertain us that make things happen in this world that make the achievements you know uh they're fun but one every positive quality we have can have a negative side effect and the negative side effect is all or nothing thinking black yeah. and white all or nothing so you're such a well accomplished great person and you're doing well you, you have a good marriage all these things but because you got arrested then you went straight to this nothing now i'm nothing now i have so nothing true. creates kind of a hopelessness and hopelessness is kind of that root to suicidal thinking mm-hmm. if 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 it can't get better then i ought to check out and and there's so many people uh will be relating to this story of yours because uh, listening to this story because so many people have been there where you, you finally feel hopeless and you start to wonder i need how can i escape this yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting you say hope because i think it was 2 weeks after i got out and i had met, met with my counselor he had met with um, my counsel, we we met with him together, and then we made like these pros and cons lists. Like we were doing all these things, and we still felt like we were kind of underwater. And what so, what were the pros and cons for? For keeping the marriage, going or? to like a residential treatment or center, or going back to action recovery as an intensive outpatient program, um, doing individual therapy versus a group therapy. Just kind of like pros and cons of that, like how we were gonna if we were going to try to make this work and I just said to him, I think we need to like go to a meeting. So we went to the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints 12 step meeting. And so interesting because it was hope. It was step two. Um, and I just remember that whole time we were like, got back in the car and we were like, we lost hope. That's our problem. We lost hope and faith in something greater than us that can pull us out. And I, I think that he should, he should share this, but he got an answer to his prayer after that. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. After the hope, after yeah. the hope meeting. And I, I fought her like going to a meeting. I'm like, what, what's the point? It's just going to waste our time. You're going to keep using. So I went in with a very bad attitude, hopeless I, attitude, hopeless, bad, uh, all around. Um, so we went to the meeting and it was really good. And it was the first time that I myself had ever been to any kind of a group therapy meeting, if you will. And it was really awesome to be around other people, to hear success stories. And that's immediately like that gave me hope. So in the prior to this, I mean, it was almost like what you were referring to pros and cons of staying married. Like that was constantly on my mind. Like, I don't see this working out. She's just going to be her and I can't live like this anymore. And so um, I prayed, and I prayed harder than I probably ever had in my life. What do I do? I, w- I pride myself on being, like, a good person and knowing what's right, and I legitimately was just, like, frozen in place. I did not know what to do. Um, and it came to me that I just randomly just started reading 
and um, I think it was the news, like on Yahoo or something, and something came up, some study about divorce and the effects it has on family and individuals and whatever. And immediately I just got the feeling like, okay, you, we're going to work this out. She is my wife. I loved her to death. Um, when we got, when we first met, we've got to work this out. Um, I know she's in there somewhere and I know it's a bad thing to say that the addict changes the person, but it really truly does did. She was not my wife that I married in her active addiction. And so, um, I just made that decision and that was probably my very first step in actually moving into recovery was saying, okay, I made a decision. I'm staying with you. So now what? And that's, I still don't feel like I'm (laughs) a person to talk to about this. I feel like I'm totally clueless. I just totally winged it. And now we're here. But um, (laughs) I I think there's something to be said for doing some soul searching, whether it's praying or meditating on issues and following the intuition that you have. It takes courage to follow one's intuition. And, And I think what you're describing is that, you know, it all came together as you read that article and you had a moment of clarity, an epiphany, an answer to prayer, uh, whatever you want to refer to it as, and you followed that. And I think that's part of most people's success story in life is being grounded and, and searching for answers and then having the courage to follow the intuition that comes. Yeah. Yeah. And when you said you don't feel like you're somebody should be talking, you're definitely somebody should be talking <laughs> because I think a lot of marriages uh, don't survive an addiction. And the fact that you guys have figured out what works for you guys is Mm -hmm. giving others out there hope. But you said something, Lizzie, that I think is a key to why it is working. You said that's when he got involved. And I'm not saying when you're in your addiction that the other spouse is not involved. But I don't think that they're on the same page, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we've learned by interviewing people uh, and talking to people in my practice, the, the, the spouse who doesn't have the addiction has a different problem with the addiction. Yeah. And so when you went to, I can just tell by you telling the story, Brian, when Lizzie went to jail, there was a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you were getting a break from the, the stress of the addiction, the way it was affecting you. And so it, it's a lot to be able to say, okay, I'm back in this. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with it. Yeah. Well, when we mm-hmm. met with... Um the counselor, Rick, uh, after we had, I had gotten out of jail, he said, this is the problem is she, you're, if she goes back into recovery and she takes this on, she's going to only go up. She's going to continually work on herself and she's only going to improve. And this is your, she's going to go up and away from you. The problem is, is that he didn't like reprimand him by any means because I like he wasn't doing anything wrong, but the way that we could make it work and the fact that he had chosen to stay after, you know, everyone in the world telling him to get a divorce, the only way he was going to be able to cling to the marriage and that it really would be fueled and work was if he worked on himself. So instead of me growing away and up and him staying stagnant, it was he embraced recovery he embraced he started to come to continuing care with me and began to learn about himself and it wasn't when I say he got involved he got involved he worked the 12 steps he went to meetings and it wasn't he didn't go to the meetings with me he went to the uh, 
the recovery support meetings, mm -hmm. family, support, family group. support group for the church's program. And it's kind of like the Al-Anon for mm -hmm. AA. But but yeah, he's he's a facilitator in that program. And it was like once that happened, it was something clicked. The whole world kind of fell away from us and we were us. We kind of had to choose recovery and each other and then everything else will work out how it's going it sounds to. like maybe your friends and family all had opinions about what you should be doing oh yeah i got opinions everywhere and unsolicited opinions it was those are the best kind oh of my gosh yeah. it, at first it you was, know what you should do yeah <laughs> exactly but at first you loved it because everybody no. was on your team no i never did love it oh. i would get invited to family dinner or something and while she was in jail, like, hey, let's go out to dinner. And then I, it's the last thing I want to talk about is my effed up life. I just want to go and just relax. And it's like, this is what you need to do. So-and-so knew so-and-so. And this is what happened. You need to do this, 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 divorce this. Divorce attorneys. And it, it was just constant. It wasn't even just divorce. It was just this is what's going to happen, guaranteed. You know, She'll never get better. Yeah. That was the constant. Yeah. There was yeah. no hope. But no why do you think story. these – so these are people that loved you. Yeah. And I assume loved Lizzie. Mm -hmm. Why were, why was, that seems pretty dire advice. It is. And I think. Where does that come from? Well, it, it came from both of our families. Her family even gave me advice. Um, she has a sister who is currently in the addiction realm. Um, She's two years older. Two years Caroline older than her. Math. Yeah, everything. Just got out of prison not too long ago. So that her family had already been through this. And they're like, you know what? And that was their end result was my sister. Who yeah. Never been got out of jail for since 18, you know? Okay. Yeah. So it was. I think, I think sometimes, I guess what I'm hinting at is sometimes that really harsh advice, get a divorce, you know, she'll never get better. Um, it actually comes from a place of both love and fear. Yeah. yeah. You know, oh, yeah. They, they, they see like, let's, let's try to salvage what we can here. Mm -hmm. You've got, you've got kids to take care of and, and, and you know, or one kid at the time. Um, and uh, I think looking back on it, we can kind of have a little empathy for family too. They probably look at how the two of you are doing now and are very glad you didn't take their advice. Hey, you're listening to Project Recovery. More with Brian and Lizzie coming up. anyone admitted that yes actually <laughs> so funny story is because of i once i made that decision i'm like you know what guys just stop i'm we're gonna work this out either way we're, i'm trying to work this out this is my decision and then it came to the point of okay well if you're doing that then don't come around we don't want you we don't want lizzie around wow, our really? family okay so if my family's listening to this, sorry, but this is what you guys did. <laughs> and yeah. so it was really hard. So it's we like. We run an honest program, right? Yeah. yeah. And it was. But it turned out. Yeah. yeah and I'll get to that. I mean, it was brutal. Sorry. It would be like birthday parties and I would see it like on Instagram or something. I'm like, oh, we didn't get invited or family parties or whatever. That is pretty tough. And it was like, well, why am I getting punished for this? You know? And then slowly they came around and. But that will go back to what we, yeah. we've been taught in recovery is boundaries. And you – I mean if that's their parents' boundaries, that's their parents' boundaries. And if they don't want to invite that in right now, 
that that that's their thing. You have to learn to respect yeah. that. You have to learn to respect it. You might not agree with it, right? You, but it's hurtful sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. hurtful, but you don't know what they're going through, and you know, exactly. like your parents of what they've seen mm-hmm. through, and so they're just kind of doing what they've known and what they've been taught and what they've learned through others, and so yeah. they're doing self-preservation as well. I would think. Yeah, best yeah. they can do. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I think that's what we're all doing is the best we can do with what we do. So you guys decide you're going to do it together. Yeah. What does that look like? So the first thing we started doing, it was the meetings. That was like the first step, and I really enjoyed it. I was like, that was one of the coolest things I've ever been to. Like such awesome people, such diversity, and everybody has a commonality. And it was just you immediately felt like I'm best friends with every person in here, and I don't know one person's name. Kind of like what you were saying. Yeah. You walk into a room, and then all of a sudden you feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm not so out of – this world. I I hope the listeners are really taking that in because you know what? That's not how most people think of a meeting for recovery, right? If you've never been to one, a lot of people feel like it's going to be a bunch of sad sacks who can't mm -hmm. figure it out. Exactly. And why would I want to be part of that? Yeah. But you actually look like he's smiling when he's telling the story yeah. about like, how fun it was to go to the recovery meeting. They were. And we loved them. And that's like it turned into a date night as horrible as that sounds. Like it would be like Thursday, Friday night, whatever the home group was we were going to. We get a babysitter to come over and we're like, OK, we're going to dinner and a meeting. And we did it. And we did that for like a year and a half, two years. Two years, yeah. Every single week. Like didn't miss, a ch- miss an opportunity. And so during that, I found a family support group meeting that was right across from the hall from – the addiction recovery meeting. So I'm like, do you care if I pop in there, see what that's about? And that's where it really changed for me. Um, seeing the, the addict side, I understood it and I got it, the, the addiction recovery and all that. But I still needed, I kind of still didn't feel supported there. So I found this family support group and I walked in there and a bunch of other people that were in my exact same shoes. And like you, everybody had said earlier, I felt like I was the only one in the world that was dealing with this. Nobody else knows what I feel like. Yeah. And so once and I started sometimes going, oh. the spouse feels like nobody cares either because I'm not the one. I don't really have a problem. I don't, yeah. I don't have the addiction. Yeah. And and you, it sounds like you walked across the hall and found your people, huh? Yeah, I did. And I started attending that and it worked out perfect. So that was our date nights. It was every Thursday night. And um, just going there and seeing where people were in recovery. Some people were there for the first week because somebody they loved just found out they were an addict or they relapsed after 10 years of being clean or whatever like that. It came to the point where they asked me to be a facilitator for the group, and I did that. And, and I was doing it for the addiction side, yeah. so it was exciting because he's like, wow. Like, yeah, gonna be doing and it would it. be cool because spouse would be in the addiction side and their spouse would be on my side, and we knew them mutually, and we knew them outside of addiction, and it was really cool to see that happen. And Some type of ownership, too, of your own like our own recovery. Yeah. And the one thing that I wish I could have got right off the bat that I didn't, that it took me a long time and a lot of pain and agony was to find hope. And so when people were there for the first time, be like, dude, you're in the right place. This is, you're doing the exact thing that you should be doing. I promise you're going to find help here amongst us. And it was, that's where it really excelled, I would say for me. Because I, I was getting that for almost four months, you know, like I was, I had gone to treatment. I was going to continuing care once a week. I had a counselor and I was attending meetings. I had that hope because I could see it. I didn't necessarily believe that I could do it myself quite yet, but I, it never occurred to me that like, 
I was alone, where he was so alone. And had no one to talk to. Yeah. Like family shunned everything. Friends weren't talking to Yeah, friends, us. everything. I just literally felt like I was alone and I was the only person. That sense of community and connection, yeah. he was totally – I had a piece of it. It wasn't fully developed into what it could be or is now because I didn't have him involved and we were still like really, really rocky. But you need that in recovery of anything. It doesn't even have to be addiction. It could be supporting an addict. It could be um, having a baby, like just having my baby five months ago. I, I needed that connection and that you just need people around you. What's the opposite of addiction, Matt? Connection. Connection. Yeah, there you go. Are you right? Come on. <laughs> I got you. I thought we finished each other's sentences. <laughs> That's right. But I want to go back to something real quick um, because, and I've never heard this, and we've been doing this for quite a while now. You said you had to, in your meeting with your counselor out of jail, that you had to close the back door on oh. pills. What, what does that mean? Have you heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what. Tell us what you mean. Okay. So step one, we admitted we were powerless, right? So I have I have always had a hard time with that, especially watching my sister and being at a young age exposed to like the recovery world is saying you do have power. You just have to stop using. Um, but for me, it was like a light bulb switched when I realized that I'm powerless when I'm in an active addiction. What I have power over is shutting the back doors. So going to doctor's offices by myself, I don't do. I have a full um, at Action Recovery Group. Uh, Rick's model is full abstinence. So I don't take allergy medicine. I don't take Benadryl. I don't take NyQuil. I don't... Um, anything that has sort of a anything, sedating yeah, effect. Yeah, any, Would there's you take so many. Tylenol? Yeah, yeah. But like not, not, so, Tylenol, not something yeah. that can alter your state of mind. Yeah. Anything that can tickle the addict or yeah. the craving. Um, so I don't do that. I don't go to people's houses by myself. Uh, I don't – what are my some other things? Like I uh, – well, It sounds like where you allow yourself to work. Yeah. Yep. I work at Action Recovery Group as the clinical director's assistant and the intake Because most nursing jobs you would – be around it. Be yeah. around mm-hmm. be around opiates and other, you know, benzodiazepines and other medicines that have addiction yeah. potential. Yeah. And I hear yeah. that all the time is uh are you ever gonna go back to it? Are you ever gonna do that? And I just for me respect myself enough now to just keep all those doors shut. Why? Why test it? You yeah. know? Yeah, I think closing the back door for most people, what that means is you make hard line permanent changes in your life that remove you from any opportunity yeah. to to be tempted. Don't drive by the liquor store if you're an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what your recovery looks like for you, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and I think we talk about this on this. When I talk about my recovery, my recovery is my recovery. Mm-hmm. Right. I live in a world where there's alcohol. I go yeah. to family parties where there's alcohol. And that doesn't bother me. Yeah. My hard line is not picking it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, you know, not doing another one. What if you were what if you were cleaning up uh, helping because I know you're a helper and there's some unfinished beers or things at the family party done it you pick them up and throw them away yep done okay. it I, I cleared tables at uh, Maxwell's when I was DJing so I could get out of there earlier okay yeah, I'm, so I'm, something that's interesting about that too is you get to a point in recovery where you are very far removed from that where it's like oh my gosh I'm holding it like that 
you know, almost like before you're going to use, you kind of almost get high, the sense of that. Yeah. You do get away from your that. brain has I, triggers. Yeah, right? right. I do also think, though, that those big book thumpers from the like they have these set rules. But that's not the case. It's whatever works for you. Yeah, that's why I say it's my recovery and that's what you're recovering. And I think you're setting up your own boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you've started to test those boundaries, that's where the danger area comes. Now, have you uh, back – so one of the things we know in psychology is that our personality is really how we perceive and interact with the world. It's Mm -hmm. kind of our autopilot. Yeah. So I would assume you're still a competitive person, Mm -hmm. competitive in your recovery. You want to be the best and win and do all I'm more sober than you. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see you guys fight it out later. I I think I know who will win. But how about that has – that can border on – kind of getting a little cocky and complacent. Have you ever been tempted to be like, I'm I'm above this? Have you has that ever snuck back in a little so, bit? So it's very interesting. Working at action now, um, I do see myself sometimes falling into the sense of you should just do this. This is what works. But I also know and it was it's interesting you say that because I my friend posted on Facebook, are you like ask yourself this question, are you um, so set in your ways that you wouldn't try something new. And I'm like, ooh, maybe, maybe I am. And so I, I've realized that the best part of my, re- my recovery that I do now is a moral inventory, a very thorough written moral inventory every day. And I think that keeps me pretty grounded. Granted, it's not trying something new, but I'm very honest with, with that process. And the humbling part that I try to keep myself going back to all the time is those making amends promptly. And I think that keeps me, um, I do think that definitely I could get cocky. I definitely feel like that, but I also know it to be true that a big part of my personality has changed Mm. since being in recovery. How would you describe it? That know-it-all part of the competitiveness in me is, is definitely dulled. It's mm-hmm. still there and it still comes out a lot. I've, I've noticed that I kind of have to like reel that in. But I just want to know. I want everyone to share their opinions and I want to just embrace it all because I've realized that um, everyone has something to add to my life in in a good way. And that intellectual conversation and triggering my brain and like trying to have these deep conversations is that like – what I crave in life now, that authenticity and vulnerability that people can share. And so I do think that recovery has, I don't know, would you say that to be true, that since I've been in recovery, that that's... Absolutely. Yeah. See, I I like to say that my recovery is always evolving. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I can't tell you what's going to come down in in the future, but I mean, I'm, I'm open. Mm. To, to to try new ideas and do that stuff. And I, I, I think that's what works for me is that it, it is evolving. Trying new methods of staying New modalities, or, n- yeah. new ways to look at a thing uh, and, and a perspective mm-hmm. and trying to be empathetic and trying to see the other shoe. I mean, this one is one of my favorite episodes. I know we say that every episode and I don't want our, you know, our guests <laughs> to think that we say that just because they're here. This is my favorite episodes because we got to see both sides of the story so clearly yeah. here. Yeah, that's great. And I can empathize with both of them, and I can see both sides. And I think it's so wonderful that these guys figured out a way that works for them. Mm-hmm. Now, what they did is not going to work for everybody out there, but you might be able to find something in this that goes, huh, 
Well, I think there's hope. some common threads. Hope. Uh, you guys are both giving back, working as facilitators. I think you also both found your people, right? People that you can really relate to. It's not just Brian going with Lizzie to meetings, but Brian's found his own meetings. And I, I love the advice of your therapist or the prediction of your therapist, uh, which was that Lizzie, if she stays in the program and works hard, she's going to grow and develop in ways that will make Brian feel left behind if Brian doesn't do his own development. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's true in marriage uh, in general. Yeah. You know, I want to ask, did you, have you guys done, uh, like, how would you rate the state of your marriage in general right now? Ten. Out of ten. Good job, Brian. That was smart. <laughs> smart, yeah. smart move. Definitely, though, like, we, these deep conversations and this level mm-hmm. of, like, trust and vulnerability that we have now, never did we have that. Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, you know, I'm assuming that this has spurred deep conversations. You're doing daily written meditations. You guys are talking honestly about thoughts and feelings that uh, most couples don't have a um, – they don't have a forced reason to do. Mm-hmm. You guys had a forced reason. It was like we got to do this. Yeah. We got to get real with each other or we're going to be over with. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of couples will – live together for 10, 20, 30 years and never really talk to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, uh, what's that like? Do you have, um, uh, well, so I, uh, side story, I had a professor in graduate school who's kind of a weird, funny guy. And, uh, and he had left me this cryptic message. You got to call me this weekend. And I had forgotten all about it. And it was like Sunday afternoon. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to show up without having called him. So I called him at home and he answers the phone. He says, hello. And I said, oh, hey, this is Matt. Uh, got your message on Friday. I'm just giving you a call. Oh, I can't talk right now. It's dialogue with my wife time. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And he hung up. And so I thought, hey, that's really cool that they're, they're having, they have set dialogue time with boundaries. Who calls I, it dialogue? <laughs> weird psychologist. But like my, my point is, why do you answer the phone? Yeah, right. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The weirdo answers the phone and says yeah. it's dialogue time. Don't bother me. I'm like, well, don't answer the phone. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Anyway, but do you guys do things like that? Do you sit down on purpose and dialogue, talk, even if you're not nerdy? You call it something cooler, like, you know, pre-sex conversation or something? <laughs> Whoa. Some people call that fun. Wow. Yeah. We're in marriage therapy We're mode, Casey. We could even make it very... I call that... <laughs> are the kids asleep? Are they... <laughs> I think something that's that's interesting about that is that we we've always been very very much like best friends uh even more so now I I feel like when Mike and came into our life my daughter I she kind of came my my world and I kind of put him a, away like I mean obviously it was crazy but um I think that it's been a big eye opener to just he's a silent treatmenter and I'm like a we kind of blow up at each other and now it's like I don't remember the last time we really got in a fight. Like we're very fat, quick to say sorry. We're very mm-hmm. – it's we talk every day on his way home from work. That's 45 minutes we talk on the phone. And before – I mean once the kids are in bed, we like – We know what you do. Talk. It's okay. <laughs> sleep. Matt. Well, Casey, you said <laughs> are the kids asleep. And so. Jeez, yeah, we, we expect do. that from me. <laughs> we do. And that – I'm know? the therapist. We talk about it all. That's gotten better, too. So yeah. That's gotten better, too. Better way to make so, what, so what's – if you were to say what's the formula, because I will say this. Let me criticize psychologists for a minute and okay. therapy, okay? 
Psychologists and therapy, one of our big problems has always been really only paying attention to when things go wrong and tearing it mm-hmm. down and breaking mm-hmm. it apart. But we, we have gotten better over the last probably 10, 20 years of learning to say when things go well, are we breaking it down? Are we understanding the formula? What are the oh. ingredients? So I want, I want you guys okay. to give a, a message to our listeners, what, whether they're in, in a marriage that's struggling with addiction or not. What are your ingredients that your marriage is going so well right now? What, what is that, I, you named a few. Let's recap. What are, what are the things? Bullet points. I would say my number one thing is communication. When you get bugged or suspect like an addict – it was just communicate. Don't just assume, oh, she's high again. I know it. I'm not even going to ask, and I'm going to be pissed the rest of the night. So just Like right now? Are you saying our tips for right now or during yeah. that moment? Uh, yeah, all Either. of them. Either. Yeah. I would just yeah. say communication yeah. in okay. that time. And then now where I wouldn't, wouldn't communicate, now I will. Like something's on my mind or something's bothering me or I need help or something, I'll immediately just ask. I won't assume. And part of communication is these – deep conversations that I was talking about, it's like I do my own individual study of um, real, with religion and with spirituality, and I immediately share those things. I just – I don't just keep – I all, we, all, we just continually bounce these, like, broad and – But I think grand. that's vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's yeah. what that is because, mm-hmm. you know, you're willing to share something that's deep inside that you believe with someone – yeah. Else, yeah. and you don't share that with a lot of people. So if you have that yeah. one person to be vulnerable with, I yeah. think that's amazing. Yeah, and having fun together—that's yeah. something huge. That we we definitely had had fun before, but I think it's something that, like, as a whole family, we we don't we have not let kids slow us down, and we yeah. couldn't. We when mm-hmm. we had Mike, and I think we kind of allowed that to happen. Like, oh, we've got a baby now, and we have to, like, do this. But, like, we've taken her to Ireland twice. We take my, like, our newborn little baby and our almost five-year-old golfing all the time with us. And we just do – we don't let that stop us. Yeah. And it's good for us. That's amazing. So now what's Thanksgiving look like at your parents' house? It's fabulous. I so mean, good. literally. It, so yeah, to circle back to circle that. Circle all the way back to that since um, we talked about it earlier. It was slow. It wasn't just immediate. Oh, all of a sudden, everybody just with his family, with my family, everybody just dropped the curtain and say, "Okay, welcome back. How's everything going?" You know, it was slow. One by one, slowly, people started coming around. And then now, my sister, um, her husband is an addict, and she just found out just this last year. And I spent hours on the phone with her, and one of the things she said, and she was one who. One of them who has never said anything. And she said, I am so sorry for the way I treated you during this time. I had no idea what you were going through, and I just made assumptions. And she full-on apologized. And I'm like, it's okay. Like, that's what happened. It was the past. And I'm in a better mindset, so I'm not holding a grudge. I'm like, life's moved on. I understand. But you don't don't let her come over, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know. Wow, Matt. (laughs) What's wrong? And you know what, though? We've learned through recovery that the best people that we know um, are in recovery. The Absolutely. most amazing, big-hearted, beautiful souls that we've ever met, we found through recovery. So because this has happened to their family, we know what that looks like. We know that our relationship with his sister and her, um, her husband is going to be 
10 times better. Even though they're in the, they were in the rock bottom of everything hitting them, I'm like already jumping forward six months in my head. Like, I can't wait. This is going to be beautiful. We're going to be like so much closer. What's going to make it that way? The vulnerability and authenticity of getting real with yourself. Yeah. In turn, you just want to share that. You want to share those parts of your life with other people, yeah. that connection. Yeah. yeah. I love it. This has been such a great episode. And I've really enjoyed watching these two interact throughout the whole podcast. Yeah, you can tell that they are in sync. Because normally when somebody comes in here, they'll turn and talk to us, but they've been just talking to each other. And, I know. And, and, but I <laughs> you think and that's, I've had to like yeah, fight for some But I time. think that's so cool. And, yeah. and I think this story is going to give people hope. And so if people want to find out more information kind of about the programs that you went or what you guys have done, is there anywhere they can follow you guys? Yeah. So actiontreatment.com or Action Recovery Group on Facebook. And I have a blog. <laughs> Share she needs, it. She needs to complete it. Okay, oh. I'm. I, and no, she's doing each of the steps, and I've been telling her for the last year and a half, two years, like you need to go all twelve steps. You're on nine, mm-hmm. or seven. Yeah, so there's seven or steps eight. up to there that are really Recovery good. blogspot.com, Right. All right, I love it. Any final thoughts with you, Doctor Matt? No, I've had a great time. It's been a great time. Uh, <laughs> what does your intention bracelet say? Uh, the intention bracelet, this is Hope, Love, and Family, Friends. That's for Rebecca Cressman. She's on FM 100. And this one right here, this one, is that what this is? Yeah, what's that My one? daughter gave me this when I was in Pinnacle Recovery Center. Uh, she made it for me. And so she came up to me and she goes, Dad, I made you a bracelet. And I said, cool. And I'm not really a bracelet guy, mm-hmm. but I looked at it and it says, Love and Hope. Mm. And it says uh, she gave it to me. And, I, and, I'm, and I, I put this on the second week I was in recovery. So I've had it on for over a year. What yeah. does yours say? Mine says fortify, which I kind of took when we like worked everything out. At, um, not everything, but we were on the mend. And fortify like means defend. Obviously, yeah. it's defend like, your recovery, defend your family, defend your faith, defend what you believe in. And yeah, it stayed on there. And I think it's cool you have one. I love it. Lizzie Bryan, thank you very much for coming down and sharing you. your story. I appreciate it so much. Josh, thanks for running the show. Dr. Matt, for all that you do. If you know somebody who needs help, have them do what I did and give Pinnacle Recovery Center a call. I just might answer the phone. Project Recovery (laughs) is a KSL podcast.